From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A proposed House amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that won't make it into this year's bill is in the spotlight tonight after President Trump fired the leader of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. Representative Lauren Underwood of Illinois says she'll try to get a five-year term for CISA directors in next year's NDAA. President Trump announced he fired CISA director Chris Krebs Tuesday in a tweet. The Pentagon's third consecutive audit is complete with progress, but without a clean opinion. Thomas Harker, performing the duties of Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, says it may take seven more years to get a clean opinion for the entire department. Military.com reports Harker says the Marine Corps made, quote, a ton of progress, and the Defense Information Systems Agency's working capital fund should complete a clean audit next month. The Navy will establish a new fleet for the Southwest Pacific and the Indian Ocean. The Secretary of the Navy, Kenneth Brathwaite, says he'll work in the time left before the Biden administration takes over to establish the new first fleet. Brathwaite hasn't said where the Navy will base the fleet or what ships it will include. Senate Appropriations Committee's budget mark for fiscal 2021 includes big increases for F-35 funding and big cuts for research and development. The request would cut RDT&E spending by $2.1 billion next year. Major General Arnold Panaro, U.S. Marine Corps retired, is CEO of the Panaro Group, member of the Defense Business Board. Arnold, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming back. Is it fair, using the information that I just laid out there, to call the F-35 program a winner, to call RDT&E losers, or is it more nuanced than that, Arnie? I think France is uh, glad to be back, and I think we need to put this in perspective because I, I don't think this is really a case of winners and losers. You have to look at the total, the total in the appropriation bills, including MILCON, $739 billion, um, which is the bipartisan budget agreement, and that means DOD is spending about $2 billion a day. And there's $100 billion still in the research and development accounts, $130 billion in the procurement accounts, so the R&D accounts even with that shift of $2 billion, which is just one day spending in a very, very minuscule percentage of the overall total, the, the R&D for microelectronics, hypersonics, quantum, robotics, uh, all the things that are keys to the future are funded very robustly in the procurement bill. Obviously, they've added some ships and airplanes, and which means they're focusing a little bit more on the present than the future, but I do not think they've underfunded R&D at all. I appreciate the nuance because I get caught up in the same game I think other Pentagon observers do, which is trying to make this into a horse race. And it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is the most important thing is, are we or are we not continuing to align budget priorities with the national defense strategy? That's what I'm reading between the lines. Is that fair, Arnold? I think it is fair to say that there's tremendous bipartisan support for the national defense strategy, particularly the focus on great power competition against China. However, I would point out the new administration is going to have to make some adjustments in the NDS because all our leaders have said you need three to five percent real growth to implement the strategy. We're going to have flat budget. This is a flat budget compared to FY20. The, the, the current administration projects a flat budget going forward with the deficit pressures and other pressures we have. So we're going to have a strategy force mismatch 
and that's got to be corrected. You, you just can't have a wish list for a strategy. You've got to make it realistic. So they're going to have to be some adjustments there. And the dynamic as far as making those adjustments is interesting to me because I, I don't recall a time that I've been paying attention to this stuff, Arnold, that I have seen both political parties with disagreements about how to proceed moving forward. Uh, the chairman of the Hask, Adam Smith, said recently he doesn't want to cut the defense budget, but he sees um, fellow members of the Democratic caucus in the House that would favor that. Uh, and, and we see in the Senate there are a number of Republicans that are at least thinking, if not saying out loud, uh, about what to do about deficits. So there's, there's not the, there aren't the clear markers that I see moving forward that there normally are. Do you see clear markers in those areas, Arnold? Actually, Francis, again, I look at the long march of history here. In the last 56 years, we've had divided government for 36 of those years, and our national security has fared very well. I mean, I was the staff director of the Armed Services Committee when we had to work with some of the same issues that Adam Smith has outlined that members of in his caucus are concerned about. The ICBM leg, the MX at the time, there was a strategic defense initiative, there was the B-2 bomber, and there was a lot of talk about, well, we've got to cut those. But when it was all said and done, national security, in, in, in my day and in to, in today's day, with the leaders on the two authorizing committees and appropriation committees, they've approached these matters in a very bipartisan way. Joe Biden was in the Senate with my boss, Senator Sam Nunn, for 24 years. He's a mainstreamer when it comes to national security policy. All his top people that are around him, the people that he's named for his defense transition team, these are Pentagon savvy, very strong pro-national defense. So frankly, there's always this storm and dern doing the markups and back and forth. Uh, but in the final analysis, I'm very confident we're going to maintain a very strong national security going forward. I want to call on your knowledge then of the figures here as you just outlined. And you mentioned um, the President-elect Biden's national security team uh, that's going to be working on defense issues as soon as they're able to start to do so. What should industry be thinking about regarding uh, a, a new national defense strategy uh, or more broadly a new national defense posture in a Biden administration? Well, we know him very well. Uh, he's well known to us. His top people are well known to us. He's been in government um, in the Senate, in the vice president's office, worked with our industry once he left government. Um, so he's a mainstream person. I think there are going to be some priorities of his that are different from the current administration. Obviously, he's going to want to strengthen our relations with our alliances. Our industry is very supportive of that. He'll probably rejoin some of the treaties that the, that have been left in recent days. Um, you know, we, uh, we and, and I think we understand and, and realize that uh, from industry's role to make sure we have the world's finest military, you recruit and train the best people, you give them constant and realistic training of some of which industry supports, and we want to give our warfighters the very finest technology so they're never in a fair fight, whatever that fight in the future may be. So industry's role is going to continue to be critical to implement uh, the national security strategy that a new president uh, will implement. But again, there's strong bipartisan support uh, for great power competition, and particularly against China. I don't see that really changing. Um, and so we look forward to working with the new administration. Again, uh, the people that are around him, the people on the transition team, the names you hear, the great mentioners speculating about senior jobs in the Pentagon. These are people that we know an industry really well, and we will be very, very supportive of them. Arnold, there's always more to talk about than there is time to do it. Thank you very much for coming back, sir. 
Anytime. Great privilege and pleasure. Up next, creating a NATO for the next generation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the treaty organization can change for the future. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Atlantic Treaty Organization will soon need new talent to keep its work going forward. Thinking strategically about the future of NATO could include an, an approach developed for the next generation with the next generation. Lawrence Baranza is director of Transatlantic Defense and Security at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. That line is taken from your work, an agenda for NATO's next generation. Define what that means for the next generation with the next generation. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I would say the next generation, in large part thanks to NATO, has experienced the longest period of relative peace in history. But what, what we need to recognize is that this means a whole new generation of post-Cold War citizens of the alliance have grown up in an entirely different environment, less characterized by great power conflict and more characterized by things like disinformation and cyber attacks and health crises. And as these individuals are beginning to take up roles in national governments and institutions like NATO, they have a much different set of priorities that are more in line with future threats. And the Alliance can't risk losing these rising voices. Um, and if they don't bring them into the fold now, we could end up in a scenario in which NATO is viewed as outdated, doesn't have the buy-in of the next generation of political leaders. And at that point, NATO could risk retirement. So to attract future leaders, NATO has to start to take on some of these issues, becoming more global, dynamic, and diverse. And this means giving young leaders a chance to contribute to NATO's debates and policies and doing a better job of not just creating separate youth formats, for them, but actually having them sit at the adults' table and work shoulder to shoulder inside the alliance so that they can build the relationships and insights and experiences that will keep the alliance healthy and alive for years to come. What is the, the kind of the general thought process, if there is one, among that cohort of people who should be the next generation of leaders in NATO? The, the broader dialogue seems to be, does, is NATO a success or, or do we have peace? because of NATO or despite NATO, and I wonder if that's the same idea that's happening among this cohort of next generation leaders. Sure, so I think a lot of next generation leaders they care about transatlantic cooperation. They understand that NATO is important and that we need allies and friends and partners in the world to tackle shared global challenges. But they care less about traditional security and military issues and more about the issues that they've seen, you know, uh, fake news and election interference and, and hacking and climate change. So for them, it's about making sure that NATO is fit for purpose, that it's relevant, um, and that it can take on those issues that matter to them and that will in increasingly matter to all of us in the future. You have a very robust list of uh, short, medium, and long-term priorities for the next generation of NATO, and I don't have time, unfortunately, to ask you about all of them, but there, uh, there's one of each that I want to pursue. In short-term priorities, um, one of them is adapting for hybrid, hybrid threats. What's hybrid threat, Lauren? 
Sure. So hybrid threats are things like information operations, economic coercion, infrastructure attacks, uh, cyber hacks. Um, these are things that fall below the tr traditional threshold of, of military conflict. And so they're very difficult to tackle, especially for a military alliance like NATO. Um, but this matters to millennials and Gen Zs because they're growing up in a world where these are so prevalent. And these hybrid threats are part of foreign malign influence campaigns that Beijing and Moscow are waging against the transatlantic community. And I would say we're in the hybrid war right now. These things are happening all around us, chemical attacks, election interference. And we need to take the initiative as the alliance and get ahead of the curve and not just uh, stand by and react. Uh, a medium term priority that you suggest is building a digital NATO. Does that mean digital operations in each country, uh, in each of the member NATO countries, or NATO as its own entity building a digital NATO? I would say it's a little bit of both. So NATO itself needs to go digital in terms of transitioning to cloud infrastructure and using more digital technologies itself to do key things like collecting intelligence and sharing data. Um, and it also means um, thinking about data as more of a strategic capability. So not just being able to use it and collect it and share it um, as a source of information, but also as a tool to counter um, some of these threats. And so it's yes, NATO internally going digital, but also being able to extend that to its core functions of um, intelligence and also uh, command and control infrastructure and things like that. One of the long-term priorities that you suggest is making inclusion a reality. What does inclusion look like, Lauren, in a multinational treaty organization? Sure, so I think that the next generation of leaders tends to think about diversity and inclusion, not as just statistics, you know, how many women or how many of this religious minority or how many of this ethnic background, but really diversity of thought and ideas, opportunities to contribute. and. At an at a entirely um, hierarchical structure like NATO, you know, that's difficult to afford young people the same kind of opportunities who don't have as much experience or seniority. And so I think what young people want to see is an alliance that looks like them, that reflects them, that reflects their priorities and where they have a voice and can be heard. So bringing these people, these young leaders into the alliance, giving them roles on the inside and not just giving them, um, you know, a sort of kids table to contribute to, but really bringing them into the fold is what they'd like to see. Lauren Speranza, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Up next, building the defense industrial base for the great power competition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, an injection of resilience for the industrial base. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. The Defense Department spent a lot of time and money in the last eight months shoring up the defense industrial base. That work will not end when the pandemic fades. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, former principal deputy director of the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. Your latest work in which you're writing about the DIB points out two places where the defense industrial base is well postured. The first one, basic authorities, regulations, structures, and tools available to government are solid. Why'd you come to that conclusion, Jerry? 
Yeah, well, thanks, Francis. It's great to be back on. As you know, I've been working in plowing these fields for, for several years now. So uh, I was excited to take a step back and do this longer look at uh, kind of how we're possible for great power competition in terms of mobilization. And I came to the conclusion on those two areas because of the COVID response. You know, that was, I mean, as close to as, as a national emergency, uh, national security emergency as, you, as, we, as we had since World War II, really. Uh, and then the tools and authorities we had, the contracting authorities, you know, far and on far, the authorities such as the, uh, the Defense Production Act really, really came uh, came to bear and really performed well. We were able, we only had very short periods where we had shortages on PPE, um, and, and, you know, assuming we could get it. So, um, and that, but that is a capacity issue. And the other area is that the, um, the defense industrial base and the overall industrial base has grown tremendously. There were companies all over the place, companies that were startups in Silicon Valley that turned from working on um, robots to building ventilators, as well as commercial companies like GM and Ford, also guys. So everyone was all hands on deck and it was amazing to see the response from the uh, companies across the spectrum. So in those two ways, I thought the, um, I think we're well postured for um, uh, mobilization as a, as, a, as a country. There are three areas where you're suggesting there is still work to be done, room for improvement. The first is capability. What do we need to build regarding capability, Jerry? Yeah, so capabilities is kind of what we have uh, at, our, um, uh, at our fingertips. So this is, uh, and so there's technologies we need to focus on. Those are, you know, kind of well-known. There's been talked about, you know, AI, hypersonics, uh, robotics, um, you know, these kind of autonomy, these kind of capabilities we need to strengthen. Uh, and we also need to bring capabilities that are not no longer onshore, bring some of those back. So it's just rare earth processing um, such and things like that. And today there was actually an announcement from DOD awarding three contracts on rare earth processing. So, so we need to bring those capabilities back or develop the new capabilities. So that's the capability side. Um, and I... Do we need to bring that capability back to the United States, Jerry, or just bring it back to our allies rather than having it in a country that's our adversary? That's, that's a great point, Francis. So the key, in my view, is that we have to get out of the China business, right? So those are where we have single sole source situations with regard to China or other, other adversary nations such as Russia. Uh, and that's where the focus needs to be, not on just building everything in America, because uh, we have close allies, you know, on north and south of us that have tremendous capabilities in terms of mining, in terms of production uh, that we can use, as well as, you know, our partners, our Five Eyes partners, Australia, the United Kingdom, uh, in Japan. I mean, and we have natural and existing industrial partnerships, and we want to build on those because, as I've written in other words, we, 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 sometimes we need a little help from our friends. We, we don't need to do it all here. We don't need to buy America only. I think you're on to something there that we'll see more in the in the broader industrial base, yeah. not just the defense industrial base in the coming months. The second item that you write about is capacity. What's the difference between capacity and capability, Jerry? So capability is what we have in terms of the, the systems or the technologies. Capacity is how much, you know, the scale. And here, I mean, we're never going to have enough, you know, um, as uh, the... The, uh, we're talking with shipbuilders, you know, 70% of their suppliers are sole source mom and pop shops. So you're not going to rebuild, you're not going to build redundancy up and down the scale, but you want to have enough so you can have real competition. You want to think about, think about World War II and the number of aircraft companies. You had Lockheed, you had Martin, you had Grumman Aircraft, you had all these companies innovating, developing new ideas. You need to have more of that 
um, in terms of capacity. And the, the ways to do that are through things like the uh, middle tier acquisition, where we're doing prototypes to help um, build those capacities. So we want more of that, and that is capacity. But we're never going to have enough. We don't want to have too much either. So this is not a recipe for, you know, just, you know, um, uh, over, over producing, but you need to have some capacity so you can continue to innovate. We have about a minute left, Jerry, and the third item is resilience. How do we build more resilience into the defense industrial base? I know it will take longer than a minute, but give me 60 yeah. seconds. <laughs> no problem. So capability capacity, the balance of that is what leads to resilience. So if you have enough capabilities and you have enough capacity to, to do more than uh, you know, build more than one aircraft, for instance, then that leads to resilience because resilience is about being able to, you know, if you suffer a number of attacks or shortages that you're able to respond to that. So to do that, we need a couple of things. One, we need to improve how we plan as a nation. We've got a bunch of overlapping authorities, uh, overlapping executive orders. We need to improve that at a top level, uh, but planning is not going to fix everything. So we, we need to have resilience um, by having that capability capacity across the industrial base and we really need to focus on things like cybersecurity that uh, prevent us from all being knocked out um, in, in the event of a massive cyber attack. Jerry McGinn, always great ideas. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Great. Great to see you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, Gain 2020, the Government Marketing Conference, is virtual this year. You'll learn how to reach your remote government prospects from the industry's brightest minds. Gain will also host training workshops and a lot more. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv events. The conference is underway. You can watch content online through tomorrow. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.